G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone and welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the round 18 review edition and a massive round with uh, lots of ramifications for all parts of the ladder, the, uh, mainly the top end of course, but uh, a lot of drama, a lot of controversy, some thrillers, some uh, outstanding gutsy performances from certain clubs which will talk about at length as I say a very good evening to my co-host Mark Footyology Fine. How are you finding? Yeah, g'day Mr Footyology yourself. Another great round of football and well GWS just when we wrote them off a win that could catapult them back into the season pulls Collingwood right back into the mix and just makes that top eight even with teams that you wouldn't have imagined a possibility for top four now even covering that. Well, if Peter McKenna had still been commentating, you know what he'd be saying. You just can't write the Giants off. No, you can't. And it was a fantastic effort. Sons, arguably their two best players, Canilio and Kelly. But I tell you what, we're not without our two best players because those wonderful people at Andrews Hamburgers remain our sponsors and remain keen supporters of Footyology. They're at 144 Bridport Street in Albert Park and you know what, we just can't thank them enough for their support. And likewise, Nick Spartel and Hardwick Buildco, of course, two great sponsors, and we're not without them. But as I said, the um, GWS Giants were without Canilio and Kelly and had their best win of the season. You know, uh, I was so enthused by my own side's gutsy victory on Friday evening. I thought, uh, you know, if Andrews were still open, I would be driving all the way to Albert Park for a celebratory hamburger, and I think I'd be jumping on the line to Nick Spartels and ask him to come and renovate my house right now. That's, that's how happy I was. That's a true footyologist. <laughs> okay. Um, competition uh, goes on. Uh, just a quick reminder, what's this week's competition? Big hair. Big, beautiful hair. Long, shiny, well, I'm not going to try and misquote here the musical again, but uh, you get the idea. Pa- past or present? Yep. Froze, perms, the... Sheeman, uh, uh, what is it? Shining, no, I can't do it, go on. Flax and something. Wax and something, yeah. yeah. The more hair, the better. That's all we're saying. Here, baby, there, mama. Everywhere. Daddy, daddy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I've got some good entries already on that one, so keep them coming in. You send them to uh, info at footyology.com. Dot au. All right, we're not going to monkey around anymore. Let's get straight into the wraparound. On Footyology, wraparound. Well, let's start at Adelaide Oval Friday evening, and I'm very happy to start there. I've got to say, a great win to Essendon, 15-6, 96, defeating Adelaide, 10-15, 75. Outstanding win for the Bombers. I'd argue their best, argue, arguably, in 15 years. 30 points down. 15 years? Yeah. Wow. I think so. Um, 30 points down uh, quite late in the second quarter. Still four goals plus down early in the second half. On the road against an Adelaide with their tails up. Minus uh, five of their best 12 um, in Hurley, Smith, 
Danaher, Bell Chambers, and I knew I'd miss one, but it'll come to me. Um, I did the math on that, so don't don't doubt me. Um, oh, I thought Laverde actually was a big out as well. I know you got not. He wasn't one of them, but yeah, no, he he he'd been improving. Um, they had to make four changes, so that didn't help stability. The difference with this one, I, I guess, was uh, similar to recent weeks in that they've come from behind, but. Uh, John Walsfold really threw the chess pieces around a bit on this occasion. So Michael Hartley had come in as a uh, defender and sort of pinch-hitting ruckman. He ended up going back permanently to defence. Carl Hooker went forward. They used Anthony McDonald, Tip and Woody a little bit further up the ground, played more of a, a role sweeping up into midfield. Um, and they just got their outside run going. Zach Merritt, outstanding game from him, 31 disposals and two goals. Mitch Brown, I will elaborate on Mitch Brown, but uh, he was the forward that really straightened him up, as he does time after time, and he was just terrific. Kicked uh, four goals, three outstanding goals in that second half. I mean, he kicked four straight, and they were just important telling kicks at goal, weren't they? Yep, and uh, it's it's sort of, goal kicking has got so bad now that when a guy just kicks consistently straight like he does, it really stands out. He, he was absolutely terrific. I thought... Uh, Dylan Clark did a, a pretty good run with job again on Rory Sloan and curbed his effectiveness. Interestingly for the Crows, the Crouch brothers, Matt and Brad, 68 disposals between them, but it didn't really feel like that. I don't know if they necessarily get great bang for the buck with their disposals. Josh Jenkins, four goals in the first half, but he had the shutters pulled down on him. And I thought some, um, I thought Essendon's defence in the second half particularly was outstanding. They scored 12 of their 15 goals transitioning out of defence, which is very, very rare these days. Um, and the likes of Connor McKenna, I thought he was terrific. Adam Saad managed to quieten Eddie Betts and generate a bit of rebound. Aaron Francis, I thought, played his best game since last year. Marty Gleeson just gets better every week. Um, that back line is looking not only strong, but uh, quite dynamic as well. So, you know, missing key personnel, but Gee, they've found a, a welcome streak of resolve in the last month. It's been terrific. You couldn't make a case for Essendon really going into the main break, could you? Because Riley O'Brien, we knew that there was a deficiency with Zach Clark out ill on top of the injury to Bell Chambers. We knew that Essendon were deficient in the ruck, but Riley O'Brien was first hands on everything and playing a pretty dominant role. Essendon, without Hurley, were one man down in the back line and Jenkin was taken taking advantage of that, four goals. And the return of Tom Lynch absolutely had an effect on the game early. He was vital early in the game and kicking, not only hitting the scoreboard himself, but really running amok. Mm. So for Essendon to be able to pull it back required some creativity in the coach's box, which you've mentioned, through John Worsfold. And it also required players who had been being beaten. I don't think Zach Merritt was... I would say at half-time he was maybe breaking even. He was going okay. But he lifted to be the most influential player in the second half. We've mentioned Mitch Brown. Fantastic effort by him. But right across the ground, the contribution by Essendon players who had been beaten early was significant. So where do we think the Crows are at? I think they're in a bit of trouble, personally. Yeah, you can't, unfortunately, rely on that forward line. Mm. I mean, Taylor Walker went off early with an elbow injury, but he was back on the ground. Yeah. And again, disappointing. The fact that Jenkins couldn't impose himself in the second half, I don't know. I don't trust that forward line at all. And as a result, 
You mentioned that Crouch's both brothers' influence on the game might have been limited, but if they were getting a return up forward, you could rationalise that they are more influential. I just think that that forward line is very uh, enigmatic. Mm. And unfortunately, a patched-up Essendon backline, brilliant effort by these no-names, some of them, or players being played a bit out of position, but if they're able to shut them down, you really wonder whether or not you can get four quarters out of the Adelaide forward line. I think that they are, if if they make the eight, they are there only for uh, not even nuisance value. They're there for the numbers and won't survive a week. All right, final one to you. How far can the Bombers go? Oh, the response to you is how quickly can they get back some key players? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Well, they may not get Hurley back at all. I think Bell Chambers... That's, to me, a key is Bell yeah, Chambers. Yeah, he's still a couple of weeks away, I think, but he's he is coming back. Um, obviously, no Smith and Danaher. Um, who's the other one I keep, I keep overlooking? It'll come to me. Um, look... Um, one of them, Ambrose? No, he came back. Okay. He, he, oh, was, he was there, yeah. Yeah, he was actually... Uh, he was reasonably important. Yeah. Um, it's it's a far tougher, more resilient brand of Essendon than was... Uh, oh, well, Fantasia didn't play. Oh, he's the other one. Yep. And, um, but I've, he's been problematic all year. Yeah, it's yeah. Hard, it's hard to bank on him. Yeah, no, but he, he will be back at least in name. Yep. Um, it's, a, it's a tougher brand of the Bombers, and uh got to say, I like it. Wonderful. To, to be able to come back four times in a row is shows a resilience and yep. shows a self-belief that can parlay into anything because, let's be honest, we know that Essendon is capable of scoring quickly. You add the confidence of that self-belief that comes that no deficit is insurmountable, and that's a very hard team to play against. Yep, uh, no doubt about that, and uh, probably need three more wins from your last five games to sew up a finals berth. All right, that's enough on Friday night. Let's move to Saturday. Okay, off to the MCG Saturday afternoon and another cracking win to the Tigers. 15-11-101, convincing. Jeez, uh, my maths is poor. 38-point victors over Port Adelaide, 9-9-63. Really, the Tigers got the jump here um, with a five-goal first quarter, five goals to two. And they just sort of held Port at arm's length thereafter, basically increased the lead marginally. Uh, from each quarter thereon. Three goals to Rewalt, three goals to Lynch, uh, and I thought that was perhaps the significant, most significant aspect for them, the way those two combined. It was the best they've looked as a tandem so far. Uh, singles the rest. Two goals to uh, our man Butters and two goals to Amon for Port. Uh, the rest all singles. Great game from Dusty Martin, 30 disposals for him, eight inside 50s too, so generating the scores rather than being involved in the scoring as much this time. Shy Bolton continues to impress me finally, 22 disposals yep. for him, but he's just, you, you can feel his influence growing week by week, and I, I think um, he will end up in their, in their best team, I think, come finals time. Their defence was terrific too, particularly Dylan Grimes and David Asprey, Basher Hawley, plenty of run. Off half back for the power, Travis Boke sort of plugged away as he tends to do. Twenty nine disposals for him, um, but they didn't have a lot to offer. They looked pretty impotent to me, and no doubt that their absentees knocked them around. And it's probably a bit of a comment on their lack of depth. I think no E, but no Wines, no Burton, 
But that was enough to really have a huge impact on their midfield, which was soundly beaten, I thought. Did you not find Richmond were handball crazy in that first half? I mean, I just felt that they were really all over Port Adelaide early, but occasionally were taking one handball too many. It was really a frenetic pinball-type movement. And in fact, at one point, you didn't need to be a professional lip reader to work out that the coach, Damien Hardwick, was imploring the runner to go out and say they don't have to rush. Yeah. But they really were playing a frenetic brand of football. Well, yeah, it was a brand that reminded me um, more of the way they played in 2017. I, I actually thought that was a good thing. I mean, part of the thing with that, it's not just being direct. It's a, they don't ship it around and just play cautious footy because they have faith in their teammates to win the contest. So when they just handball into space or just, um, you know, sort of bustle the ball forward... They're backing themselves to, to win it, and they invariably do. And just the capacity to constantly get the numbers to the contest and outnumber the opposition, um, they do it brilliantly. And they've got a lot of key players starting to run into some really good form, I think. Presti was another one who was good. Actually, um, I haven't mentioned Brandon Ellis. I thought he played a terrific game for them as well. One guy for Port who I reckon is starting to find his feet. It's taken a fair while. Carl Amon. I reckon he's starting to play some decent footy for them. But um, you know what? I just don't think they're that great a team. And I think their ladder position reflects that. Yeah. I I know a lot of people complained when Westhoff wasn't in the team, but he remains that frustrating sort of footballer, doesn't he, Justin Westhoff, where you need him to stand up in the absence of some of the key players that weren't there. It's a pity that he wasn't able to impose himself on the game. I tell you, Dylan Grimes, what a footballer he is. What mm. a absolute, um, not only a rock in the back line, but a, just a, a calming influence. He's because, got great judgment. I yeah, think Asbury has too. Yeah, they read the game beautifully. And there were times when it was a little bit, you know, the motion and the fact that there was so much play on was creating opportunities for Port Adelaide, but wiser heads prevail when Grimes is near the ball. And I think, Asprey, you're right. Similarly, very calm in a crisis. And you need that, don't you? Because there were crises and there are crises when you play that brand of football. So it was a fairly predictable outcome in the finish, didn't you think? Well, it does further reinforce the idea that this team is coming. And, you know, the results this weekend, you'd almost have them as favourites to win the flag now, would you? Well, I haven't looked at the markets this weekend, but uh, if I was framing them, I'd have them, yeah, I'd have them equal favourite. I mean, I I think they will make top four, at whose expense is the question, but um, they are definitely looking very, very dangerous indeed, I think, and uh, you might want to consider a lazy flutter on them uh, getting the job done again for a second time in three years. Any more thoughts on that one? No, I agree. I think I actually don't know if they are favourites or not, but to me, after the weekend's results and the fact that Geelong are now really um, going up and down in the one spot, Richmond, to me, are favoured to win the Premiership. All right, uh, let's move down the road to Marvel Stadium. The later Saturday afternoon game, 2-10 start, the old-fashioned 2-10 start at Marvel Stadium, Carlton and Gold Coast. And it was the Blues again, their fourth win from their last six games, and they've lost the other two by a kick. It's been some revival, got to say that, 15 goals, 9, 99, 24-point victors 
over Gold Coast, 11-9-75. Four goals to Matthew Kennedy. Um, no doubt his best game for the Navy Blues. Two to Mackay and singles the rest. Three goals to Alex Sexton for the Suns. Two to two-metre Peter Wright and singles the rest. It looked like at one stage uh, they were going to blow the Suns out of the water. They were 43 points up during the third term. But credit to Gold Coast. I, I thought they really sort of put their heads down and said, right, this isn't going to happen again. Kick the next four goals. Got it back to only 18 points at three-quarter time and had their chances too. They're frustrating to watch because they'll do great things to create chances chances and then some, you know, a stupid turnover or a fumble or just a silly error. Um, and uh, I found that frustrating enough watching it, so Lord knows what uh, how Stuart Dew finds it. But, you know, some light at the end of a tunnel after this win, unlike the previous two. Tuke Miller, pretty good form, I thought, 27 disposals. Will Brody. He That was probably the best news for Gold Coast. Yeah. He really looked like, finally, the impressive youngster that uh, a lot of time and hope has been invested in. Will Brody, a very good game. Yeah, 26 disposals, 10 tackles. I, I must admit I didn't realise he was as tough as he, he looked in that game. So, uh, you know, uh, decent development for him. For the Blues, Ed Kernow, he's been really good for them in this revival. 31 touches for him. Sam Walsh, I reckon he'll end up winning the Rising Star pretty easily, despite um, theories to the contrary. 27 disposals for him. He just looks so composed. It's definitely a Chris Judd-like first year, the level of composure he's shown right throughout, and, and the level of consistency too. I mean... I he kind of had more than a, a couple of bad games, really, certainly from the ones I've seen. Spot well, on. Liam Jones, um, really good defensive effort from him too. He ended up with 19 disposals, 11 marks to Liam Jones. So um, he's really regained that great form he had of a couple of years ago. And I'll, I'll tell you, one player the stats won't show had a great game, but I love the forward pressure by Harry Mackay, the second efforts. and mm. He's very quick and mobile for a player of his size, a really good a, a type of key forward for the future that looks to me perfect when combined with Charlie Kerner. Geez, they're big, aren't they? How many yeah, big players have they got? Yeah, they, they, they do play. They will ultimately, especially with, if they keep Casbold in the team, mm. play a marking brand of football that I think a lot of teams are fine hard to combat. Yeah, well, maybe, I don't know. Do you think they're modelling themselves on the, the West Coast um, maybe that, template? That, well, why not? Mm. It's all right if it's mobile enough, I think. But um, their, their tools look reasonably mobile to me. Incidentally, speaking of the tools, did you see Jacob Wietering? I thought he had th- that beard he's grown. It looked almost Amish or something. <laughs> I thought he was going to do a remake of that film with Harrison Ford. What's that one about the he falls in Witness? love? With yes, that's it. Great. Uh, I'm trying to remember the actress's see, name. See, I can only think of Weird Al Yankovic. And whenever I think of anything Amish, I think of his the, his song that... Um, that must have been the one Weird Al Yankovic parody I didn't see. Oh, well, I'll tell you what, we've got to play it at the end of the show. It's it's a fantastic take on the Amish, and it'll come to me in a moment. The All right. Of it. Okay, we'll uh, we'll find that one out. Not I can, I can recite Eat It word for word, but not that one. <laughs> um, so do you think Carlton would be disappointed with that, that win or not? Not at all. Not at all. For a team that, well... I'm not sure whether I can confirm it, but for a couple of years didn't start favourite in a game of football. Mm. And also for a team, obviously, that has not been able to put together consecutive wins for a long time, to get a win when things... Look, Patrick Cripps was non-influential. So 
you've got your key player having a downer, and really, at times, they were a bit flat. That opportunity to take the game away was missed. So to walk away with the four points and not play perfectly is just shows how far they've come in six weeks, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, credit to them. Credit to David Teague, too. I'm, I'm sort of starting to hope he they do give him the job permanently. I reckon he's, you know, one or two more wins, and I reckon he's just about done enough to... I, gar- I guarantee you one thing. There'd what? be a few players there who hope he gets it permanently. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Because they have flourished underneath him. Uh, Gold Coast, 13 losses in a row. Will they win one before the end of a season? No. No, I don't think they will either. No. You can almost call that a win for them, given their reason for What, this a moral win? Yeah, them? a moral yeah. victory. <laughs> yeah. One thing they did do is... From the moment the game started, they you could see that they had a far more uh, greater intent, a lot more get up and go about them, and that's yeah. all you can ask from them for the rest of the season. Yeah, no, look, it was two hideous performances in a row, and at the very least, they um, showed a bit of resolve, and, and so Jared, that didn't happen again. And you know what, Jared Witts, he's he is a, a real competitor. The, yeah, real competitor, and a real tyro. Is that the old term they used to use? Yeah. He's a tyro. As opposed to tyrant. Yes. Um, all right. Uh, another good win and a good job. Pretty efficient sort of win in the end by the Blues. Let's go to Sydney for the Saturday Twilight game. And it was a big one. Wasn't in Sydney. Oh, GWS yes, game. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about that shocking game. Okay, a lot riding on this game. GWS against Collingwood, and what an outstanding win by the Giants! All set up with a absolutely um, what's the word I'm looking for? Rollicking pul- first pul- quarter, pulsating, pulsating. It was brilliant, wasn't it? It was eight two to one goals one. Uh, what else was the tale that first quarter? Nineteen inside fifties to eleven in the first quarter. They won the clearances in the first term, thirteen seven. They won the contested ball by 18 in the first quarter. That's massive for a quarter. And Mark's inside 50 uh, significantly, 6-1-2. to one, two. Cameron and Finlayson shared six of those eight first quarter goals. Um, I neglected to give the final scores there. GWS in the finish, 19-8, 47 point victors over Collingwood. Strangely flat Collingwood, 11 goals, 9 75, I mentioned Cameron, Finlayson and Himmelberg. They shared 13 goals, 6 to Cameron, 4 to Finlayson, 3 to Himmelberg, 2 to Toby Green. He was acting captain for this game with uh, some of the big guns out for the Giants. For the Pies, only three multiple goal kickers, Brown, Crocker and Pendlebury, each of two, as Peter Landy used to say. Um... Well, it was all off the back of that first quarter finally, wasn't it? And then again, I, I guess they really held Collingwood uh, at arm's length. In fact, the second quarter was significant from a different perspective because the Pies really did launch um, you know, a fair attempt at a comeback, but uh, everything was going to have to go right. And they, they did probably dominate the second quarter, but they just couldn't put it on the scoreboard really. And um, at half time, the gap was still six goals and it didn't feel like the Pies were going to pull something uh, out of their back pocket. And uh, thus it transpired. Pretty disappointing afternoon for them. Yeah, that was an amazing first quarter. And it, that sort of term shell-shocked. Collingwood just... It, it, I don't know whether... Obviously, they were there at the start of the game. They were seemingly, though, 
second to every motion in that first quarter. And whether or not they took things a little bit easy because the selected sides suggested that they would have some real midfield dominance, but that's where they were losing it. And what a game Tim Taranto played. I mean, Mm. you've really got to, you know, doff your cap to the kid because it wasn't just a matter of him getting the ball, but he made it very difficult for Collingwood midfielders when they got the ball. 14 tackles, and he was... I just thought fantastic and might have just been the making of the kid to be there probably as one of the key midfielders. He and Lockie Whitfield, I thought, were brilliant early and made it very difficult for Collingwood's midfielders who would have expected to have some sort of domination in the game to have much of a say. And having Mumford out there as well, they certainly walk taller when he's around, don't they? Yeah, they do. I, I, but I thought he got smashed, to be honest, by yep. Brady Grundy. I thought Grundy oh. was terrific. 31 possessions for Grundy. How's that for Ruckman? And 48 hitouts. Again, though, and this is similar to the Adelaide story, they've smashed their opposition in the ruck. They've had a couple of midfielders with uh, huge numbers. So Adams and Trelaw shared 66 disposals. But you didn't really see the benefits of that. And actually, another uh, coaching move, if you like, um, the Giants playing Zach Williams primarily in the midfield. And he gave him a bit more energy and a bit more... Um, run, uh, run and drive. Yeah, yeah, just a bit more spark, I think, which is they've probably been lacking. Toby Green spent plenty of time midfield as well. Um, and again, just that shuffling of the chess pieces a bit, it really came off. So uh, hats off to Leon Cameron. Yeah, it was a game that Collingwood could ill afford to lose. Where does that leave them, Rowan? I mean, for mine, they're just sort of gripping onto that spot in the top four. Richmond have got their eyes set on it. They're only a game clear of Essendon, for example. Yeah, yeah. And, um, well, they've got Essendon in the final round, actually. It'd be interesting if that ends up being a, um, you know, a joust for like a, a top four spot. At this stage, I, I'd certainly have my money on Richmond replacing them in the top four. G. Mason Cox was disappointing as well. Mm. When you've charged with the responsibility of at least competing for the ball in the forward line, look, he was okay last week, but he's been down now for a couple of months, including the injury. And you really ask yourself whether that forward line can compete heading into the finals with others that are getting better week by week. Except for last week, and probably not coincidental, that they had their best performance for ages last week over in Perth. So that's the really worrying thing, isn't it? That you see the, the, the win against West Coast and you think, oh, well, they're back, the Pies are back. Well, they've just now, this week, reverted to what they've been playing. So has that become the norm? Or are they just in one almighty trough? And if they were in a trough, wouldn't you have expected that great performance last week to sort of jolt them out of it? So uh, they're in a bit of strife. Plenty of players out injured for them, of course. Um, I copped a bit of flack on Twitter for neglecting to mention that when I did mention that they had an ordinary first quarter. But uh, look, injuries have hurt them all year, no doubt about that. But I mean, they had injuries last year too, and they seemed to cope pretty well with that. Yeah, I don't think they'd be blaming injuries for what was a very lacklustre start to a game that they were never able to readdress. So if they're not blaming it, I don't think their supporters should. All right, we should uh, talk about the ramifications for the Giants too because I've I've been saying, I, you know, I felt like they were even money to fall out of the eight, uh, let alone sort of, you know, hang around the top four. Um, I mean, does this do for them what last week might have done for Collingwood? Well, we have to wait for the ensuing weeks, don't we? You can't sort of... There's no one you can trust anymore, is there, really? Well, that's why Richmond uh, 
so appealing now because there is a reason why they were performing poorly in the middle of the season, and that mm. was because of lack of numbers. But now with a decent number of players out on the field, you'd have to say that they are more trustworthy than most. If we were doing a uh, – we used to do a credibility ladder. If we were doing a reliability ladder, Richmond would be on top at that's the moment. That's right, and that's why I think that they are now probably favourites to get another premiership. If everyone plays to their full potential – um, GWS are certainly in that top six, aren't they? Aren't they top four, though? Well, that's a big difference. There's a big difference between yeah, top six and top four. I know, and I'm just sort of thinking on the run here. It's a bloody difficult season to uh, to predict this one. Well, you know, Geelong really have come back to the field. So the idea that there was a clear leader out there in Geelong has disappeared, hasn't it? Yep, a uh, cracking win for the Giants, uh, perhaps uh, unexpectedly given the uh, quality of players they had out, but uh, good effort by them. All right, that's Saturday afternoon. Let's talk about Saturday evening. Okay, let's go to the Gabba Saturday evening. This promised to be a pretty good game, and it didn't disappoint. A thriller, finally. 12 goals, 15 Brisbane, 87. 12-point victors over North Melbourne, a plucky North Melbourne and an accurate North Melbourne. 12 goals, 3.75. For the victors, three goals to Christensen, two to Jared Lyons. What a game he played. Two to Cameron, two to McInerney and two to McLuggage. For the Roos, three goals to Ben Brown, two goals to Mason Wood, two to Larkey and two to Taron Thomas. What would you make of this one? What a fantastic game of football. Look, North through Absolutely everything at them. Higgins came back and played as though he hadn't missed a game of football. He was highly influential in getting them the lead. And Brisbane are just a completely reformed football team because this game wasn't necessarily played on their terms. Their forward line had to survive without Hipwood having any influence of all at all. And, of course, it was big Oscar McInerney who put them in front with how long to go? Less than... Under two minutes. Under two minutes. I mean... They found a way to win, and it was based really on not at any point taking control of the game in the way that they have in previous weeks. They weren't able to free flow. North Melbourne were very good. I'll tell you one thing I loved in the game. We had an old-fashioned full-back, full-forward contest, didn't we? Every time the ball went up, Ben Brown looked dangerous and mm. Harris Andrews looked up to the task and anything that was won by Bren, Ben Brown was hard won by. It was a real good old-fashioned, pivotal contest. But for Brisbane, there was none of that um, pulsating sort of run-on football that had won them games in recent weeks. They well, North really... didn't allow it. North really closed down their space. Correct. So and they, it... they did it brilliantly. And they also, um, not for the first time this year, the Lions had to come from behind. North kicked five of the first six goals of the game. Josh Simpkin doing a good job on locking Neil, again getting in, into his face. That, I guess, becomes a bit of a talking point every time Brisbane take the field now, exactly how much attention locking Neil is going to get. They just were able to, almost through meterage and through constantly knocking down the door with a variety of players playing their role, finally get on top of North Melbourne, who, let's be honest, relied on great accurate kicking mm. to maintain the maintain scoreboard presence. Well, Brisbane, a, a little inaccurate too, and that became the frustration in the end because you felt 
towards the end of the first half and certainly in the second half. They were right on top and they were statistically, they just couldn't convert it. So um, I think I heard Chris Fagan say after the game, you looked at the stats and you felt we would have won by more and that's that's really how it looks. They ended up with, what, 12 more scores. They had 24 more inside 50s, 30 more contested possessions. Um, they're the sort of numbers that usually give you a pretty decent victory. In the end, though, and we've got to talk about what happened at the end, very controversial free kick to McInerney against Scott Thompson. The AFL has come out today and said the decision was incorrect, that yep. the marks should have been awarded. So understandably, North pretty aggrieved at that. I'll say this, um, it was one of those ones where I reckon you've seen him paid either way. That's what I thought. when I, I, I thought he was stiff to have it paid against him, yeah, but I've it. seen him paid. But this year, that sort of mark has been paid as a mark all year, hasn't it? Uh, it's been more inclined to be paid than previous seasons. Do you think McInerney sort of helped himself along a bit? Yeah, why wouldn't you? Yeah. That's, I mean, he, he was outpositioned by Scott Thompson and and pushed out of the contest. Now, look, the fact is that that has been allowed, and it was mentioned pre-season that a player would be allowed to uh, use his hands and body more in the marking contest this year. And I've got a feeling that forwards have been given more leniency than backmen. So I felt certainly for Scott Thompson, because had it been the other way around, I reckon the mark would have stood. So had the mark stood, who would have won the game? Brisbane. I still think Brisbane would have won. I mean, McCluggage kicked that second one after the siren. But I felt that they They were were dominating. They were over the top of them, and the scores were level at the time. They weren't weren't behind. Mm. If if you're asking who was more likely, pardon me, to get that point, to hit the scoreboard... Mm. I think I everybody I think everybody felt it would have been Brisbane. Well, let's talk about some individuals. Outstanding game by Jared Lyons. Well, I'm going to save oh, yeah, my, sorry. my yeah. ebullion phrase, yeah. uh, praise for a, just a little bit down the track. Can I just say this, and it's not treading on your turf here, that uh, I did tweet something about... Um, I did tweet something about uh, if there are any deficiencies in his game, they must be pretty subtle because... So true. I um, mean, where are they? What yeah, what, what has seen him rejected yeah, by two well, clubs? Yeah, and that's what I tweeted. And uh, predictably, uh, as it doesn't matter what you tweet now, someone will come at you. And I had a few people come in and say, oh, Adelaide offered him a one-year deal, but Gold Coast offered him more. And um, he got squeezed out by Gold Coast salary cap, blah, 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 blah. The bottom line is, if you want to keep someone badly enough, you keep them, you know? One-year deals for players uh, the other side of 25, closer to 20 than 30, they're yeah. not offers at all. Yeah, They're something that you have to look farther afield. So Adelaide clearly felt that they were, um, with the Crouchers, building a midfield that wouldn't include Lions. Yeah. He took an opportunity at Gold Coast. But the great shock was that Gold Coast last year... Mm, who, that was a bigger shock. You yeah. know, who were losing players and desperate for experience had got so much out of wits and lions, mm. relatively cast off by other clubs. To say to Lions that there simply wasn't a future for you at the club showed that there was something between Stuart Dew and the way Lions played football that didn't gel. Yeah, well, I'll just say to the guy who, in particular, who tweeted at me, I was embarrassing myself. No, I really wasn't. It was probably far more embarrassing entertaining any sort of dialogue at all with an anonymous nuffy on Twitter when I was trying to watch the football. That was the only thing that was embarrassing about that. You and Twitter, Rowan? Uh, We're not a great match at the moment. Uh, Another great win for the Lions. That's five straight for them now. And finally, they are in second spot on the ladder. How does that sound? It's a... It's amazing. Monumental effort, and there's no reason why they can't hold that spot. No, it's not. 
but it's not not the way they're playing. Uh, great effort and uh, certainly the story of this year. All right, so everybody talks about them in coming from nowhere to make the eight. Now mm. coming from nowhere to make the top four. Do we possibly discuss the possibility of them winning a premiership? We have to. You, you can't have a side in the top four and them and say they're not a premiership chance. Could you imagine them coming to the MCG? No, I be- can't. And but beating a Richmond? Or- no, I can't. But that would make it even better, wouldn't it? You know, like anything... You know, the Bulldogs get it's, it from seventh. You'd scratch a hole in your head, honestly. Oh, but it'd be incredible. It, it would be one of the most, if not the most, incredible premiership ever. All right, well, that game was a corker. Let's talk about the other Saturday night game, which was anything but. Okay, we're off to Perth Optus Stadium and uh, a, well, it was close. That's about all you can say. Fremantle, one-point winner over Sydney. Seven goals, 10-52, defeating... 7-9-51, three goals to Rory Lobb, uh, singles to Hill, Brad Hill, Conker, Matera and Walters. For the Swans, three goals to Sam Reid, singles to Parker, Papley, Fox and Blakey. Joel Hamling, a really good game for the Dockers in defence. Uh, he's been a great pick-up for them. Rory Lobb did some ruck work, kick three, obviously a good game for him. Uh, one of the better games, if not the best game, Conker has played for the Dockers. Mundy, Walters, Ryan and Darcy. Three Ruckman played in, in this game for the Dockers. Uh, for the Swans, Jake Lloyd uh, ended up, I think, with 41 disposals. 42 disposals. I did him a disservice. Uh, Luke Parker, pretty handy. Reid, good up forward. Nick Blakey showing his usual Signs, Tom Papley, Lively, and George Hewitt. Uh, but a real scrap, you know, one goal each at quarter time. Um, Sydney actually got the break in the second quarter with four goals. They led by 10 points at half time. Then it was Frio's turn, three goals, one in the third term to just two behinds for the Swans. Michael Walters kicked the last, oh, sorry, the first goal of the last quarter, which ended up being Frio's last goal, and uh, looked like they had enough of a lead. Uh, I think it was about 16 points or 13 points at that stage. But back came the Swans with quick goals to Reed and Blakey. And Sydney actually hit the front with only two and a half minutes left after a point to Parker. Um, the Dockers, though, <coughs> pardon me, kicked the final two behinds of the game. Uh, Langdon and can't remember the other one off the top of my head. And uh, then there was a uh, another flurry where the Swans nearly scored. Frio banged it back into an acre of space. And the ball was sort of bobbling along inside a vacant Frio forward line as the siren rang. And for the Dockers, that ends a bad losing streak and keeps alive their uh, at least mathematical chance of making the finals. Very close to a first ever scoreless draw in AFL football. Well, that's what it felt like anyhow, because the conditions were perfect for football. There was no reason why you wouldn't have a nice not a high-scoring game, but a decent game of football with plenty of opportunities at both ends for teams to score. But these two sides almost defer to not scoring, and unfortunately we saw them at their at their passive worst, you'd have to describe it. Opportunities for both teams to take the game away. And I do say this to Stephen Hawking. Next time you get a set of statistics that you want to batter the footy fan with, to prove how well the AFL has run things, and you throw up the fact that games this year have been within two goals or closer than they have been ever. 76% of game time. 
then you might want to have a look at this game because if you think that the rules brought in to make scoring freer at the start of the year work for these two teams, you'll be aghast. You'll be aghast at what they do with kick-ins. You'll be aghast at what they do, even when they have the 6-6-6, how they do defer to kicking the ball sideways and cautiously. And you might have got your close game, but you certainly didn't get anything you planned for when you brought in rules for higher scoring. What, what I think about these two sides is that they're anachronisms. You know, they're playing a brand of footy that just... Uh, I mean, I wish it was more out of date, but it's not a. It's not going to win a premiership. It is patently not going to win a premiership. Do both of them say, look, we didn't have Buddy, we didn't have Jesse Hogan, we didn't have our key forwards, so we can't play or we can't score as we would normally like to. We understand we need to score more, but take away our key forwards and we don't have a game plan B. And that's disappointing because that's how it's appeared since both those players haven't been on the field. i tell you what, I can't have been the only one watching this and thinking throughout the duration, John Longmire's just signed a three-year extension. You know, Are they going to try and do this for the next three years? Well, and and but even if Buddy, you know, Buddy isn't going to be around forever. Well, that's the thing. They need to have a firm post-Buddy plan and a, and a style of football that gets them more than 50 points, really, against a team. Let's be honest, Fife wasn't playing. They had every right to win that game. And when they took the lead at half time, Sydney would be very disappointed that they couldn't have converted that into a win. They need a PBP, a post-buddy plan. Which they ain't got. Uh, so victory at least for the Dockers, like I said. Well, when I say mathematical... Pyrrhic. A Pyrrhic victory. Yeah, look, they're, they're only... Uh, how is John Pyrrhic? <laughs> They're only a game outside the eight. No, two. Oh, yeah, one game. Adelaide is one so, game. So, I mean, who knows? This season, who knows? But uh, they'd, uh, yeah, look, they'd have to be playing a lot better, even than they played on Saturday night to have any sort of chance of making the finals, I would have thought. Well, you know, there's been that idea floated this year of a wild card to give an extra team an opportunity to make the eight. This is as good an argument as any not to do that. In fact, if they make the eight, I'd go the other way and do a sort of a opposite to a wild card and remove a team from the yeah, eight. Yeah, the least aesthetically appealing <laughs> team. Um, all right, that's Saturday night done and dusted. Let's talk about Sunday. Okay, clash of the uh, latter-day traditional rivals. Always uh, an appealing proposition, this one. Geelong taking on Hawthorne. And a bit of an upset here, although you did tip it, Finey. A good win to the Hawks by 24 points. 12 goals, 13, 85. Defeating Geelong, 8 goals, 13, 61. And that um, scoring potency that the Cats were boasting earlier in the season, boy, has that dried up. 3 goals to Tim O'Brien, 3 goals to Mitch Lewis. Uh, some real promise, well, both those guys, really, for them. 6 goals combined, 2 to Gunston. Two to Liam Shields, who uh, I'll be talking about a little bit later, but played his 200th game and successful. Henrahan and Warple singles. Two goals to Tom Hawkins, who was the only multiple goal kicker for the Cats. Duncan, pretty good for them. Guthrie, pretty good. Dangerfield, okay. Tui, not bad. Um, but the best players on the ground were mainly Hawkers. Uh, Liam Shields, I thought, was terrific. Jager O'Meara, very prominent. I haven't seen Tim O'Brien play a better game in this, um, certainly as a forward. Warple, um, usually among their best these days. Scully, reasonable from him. And good game by Lewis as well. And you know, and if, Big Boy. 
big boy McAvoy. The thing that impressed me most about the Hawks today was their defensive pressure. And it wasn't necessarily reflected in the stats either, but they just harassed Geelong. Geelong were given no time or space any time uh, one of their playmakers got the ball they were beset upon. And it was really uh, symbolised, I think, in the last few minutes when they were probably gone anyway, but you thought Geelong's still got one last gasp of a chance here and Patrick Dangerfield got absolutely mowed down by, I wrote down who it was, who was it? Jeremy Howe. Um, not Jeremy Howe. <laughs> Daniel, Daniel Howe. Howe. Sorry, Daniel. Um, but that was the sort of defensive pressure the Hawks were applying all day. They, they were terrific today. And uh, what have they won now? Three in a row. And speaking of finals, well, they're with Fremantle. They're on 32 points and uh, only a game behind Adelaide in eighth spot. Of the teams now outside the eight, they have some momentum and seemingly more purpose and more meaning to the competition than the others. In other words, if they were in the eight come the end of the season, you'd have to say that they would be a very interesting finalist. Look, first of all, Mitch Lewis was a great target up forward, and I think this was a bit of a breakout game for him. With Tim O'Brien as a surprise forward, Gunston was more uh, dangerous and also, you're talking about pressure, was able to apply pressure through contests and through second efforts more so than he has done this season. So better game by him. I thought Frawley was important. Mm. But Geelong only need to point to if they were... The fact is they have enough talent amongst their forward line and amongst their midfield to never quite be dispensed with. And if they want to know why they lost their game, the game, only look at the last, what was it, three minutes of the third quarter? Radigalia kicked an absolute, you know, took a good mark. Absolute shocker, his kick a goal. Then Stanley missed a kick a goal. And then Grind Myers. Grind Myers right. missed you're, it. Yeah, no, I wrote, yeah. I wrote that down. They were, and they were all gimmies too. They were all like 20 metres out. Not one of those on kicks a angle. should have been missed. Yeah. Bang, bang, bang. You, you can't. If you're coming in a team, you've got to put it on the scoreboard, don't you? Yeah, you're right. They were shocking kicks, weren't they? Radagalia was almost dead in front. Stanley was on about a 45-degree angle, as was Myers, but he was only like 20 metres out. Yeah. He's got a weird kicking style too, and they that was, uh, who was it? Jonathan Brown, I think, got stuck in him about that. But yeah, that was almost last hurrah. You could see the wind sort of go out of their sails after that, couldn't you? You know, they then had to face a 19-point deficit at three-quarter time, which basically Hawthorne were able to keep them at arm's length in the last quarter. But had they kicked accurately, they should have gone in about level at three-quarter time. So sometimes it just does come down to taking your opportunities, doesn't it? Now, the Cats have lost three of their last five now. Yes. Um, Is there a chance they're going to lose top spot? Do you think they're a game clear of Brisbane? What they do have is a great percentage percentage. buffer. Yeah, 135.8. The next best percentage in the league is actually GWS with 123. So it's as good as two games. And I think they've got two or three games. Yeah, they've got a reasonable run. Back at GMHBA. Yeah. You know, I've got a feeling that at GMHBA, they get all favours. Did you see at three-quarter time, Chris Scott seemed to head over to the umpires and voice his displeasure about how the game was being officiated. I didn't say that. This will play out during the week, of course, because the the coaches are not allowed to do that. Captains can have a word to umpires, but not coaches during the game. And it really, to me, given that I didn't see any stark reason for him to be complaining, reek of, well, this isn't how we get it back down in Geelong. He'll be asked for a please explain. And maybe a please pay. Geelong, 
need to do a couple of things. They need to make sure that they're not playing players that are 80% fit and they need to use that versatility that we marvelled at during their run up till a month ago that gave them an opportunity to swing players around to their best advantage. I'd like to see Blitzavs in the ruck. I think Stanley has plateaued a bit in the last four to six weeks. So whether they bring in Zach Smith or use Blitzavs, who when he ran in the ruck a couple of weeks ago was most effective, they've got some versatility within that 22 when they take the field and now's the time to use it because at the moment they are mediocre. So they've got uh, they've got Sydney in Sydney, they've got Fremantle in Perth. Uh, round twenty one, they have North at GMHBA. Yep. Round twenty two, they have uh, Brisbane at the Gabba. Mm, interesting. And round twenty three, they have uh, the Blues at GMHBA, but three road trips in yeah. the last five games. So yeah. it's not yeah, okay. Maybe it's not as easy as I thought. They would be expected to and have to beat Sydney next week. Mm. Otherwise, the nosedive might cost them that top spot, or more importantly, top two. The plot thickens. All right, that was the MCG this afternoon. Let's uh, now jump on a plane again and head to Alice Springs. All right, football back in the red centre and another Melbourne home game they travelled for and another loss for the Demons. West Coast getting their act together again. Although it was pretty hard going for the Eagles, they ended up 13-point victors over Melbourne, 14 791 defeating Melbourne 11-12-78. And a pretty good game this, Finey. I thought um, the Demons gave a pretty good account of themselves, particularly after the start West Coast got away to. Five goals to one in the first quarter. Looked like how far the Eagles. But Melbourne hit back with a six goals to three second term. And it was a real arm wrestle after that. And, uh, in fact, Melbourne... Oh, they were as much as, they were about three goals up at one stage, I think. Ended up a goal ahead at three-quarter time. Could only manage a single in the final term. And the Eagles finishing stronger with four goals three to run out 13-point winners. Melbourne still a chance. It was seven points the difference with three minutes left. Uh, pivotal bit of play. Bailey Fritch, who was um, terrific for the Demons today, unfortunately, uh, just a little blemish at a critical moment. Went inboard with a chip kick into the centre square to uh, Michael Hibbard. Mishit the pass, went over his head. Eagles intercepted, I think it was Elliot Yo. Uh, he banged the ball forward to Dom Sheed, who was in an acre of space. Actually, he made hard work of it too, but ended up kicking the goal, which gave them a sufficient buffer, and they just wound down the clock thereafter. For the Eagles, four goals to Jack Darling. Very strong up forward and a real presence for them. Two to Kennedy. Two to uh, Petrocelli. Geez, quick finding. He's fast. Uh, and singles to Ryan Waterman, Alan Rioli, Yo, and Sheed. For the Demons, four goals to Bailey Fritch. Um, he was terrific, lively, good goal sense. Um, played a really good game for them. Two to Jordan Lewis. Corey Wagner, two singles to Viney, Oliver, and Petty. Uh, I like James Harms's game. Christian Salem, pretty good. Uh, Petrarca, you know, did Petrarca-ish things. And Jordan Lewis, uh, good to see him sort of bobbing up in the best. Uh, usual suspects for the Eagles. Darling, Sheed, Gaff, 
Yo, uh, Redden, and uh, Lewis Jetta uh, providing some real dash off half-back. I'll have to be inquisitive because I wasn't an observer. I haven't seen this game yet. I'll cast my eye over it tonight. Jordan Lewis getting forward early to kick a couple of goals would have been a different role for him. So I guess uh, a lot of question marks over whether or not he should be in the team, but they obviously found a good use for him. And I saw that both Wagners were influential. Yeah, they wrote a symphony at halftime. They played a bit of a role. Look, for West Coast, I think leaving with the four points was what it was all about, wasn't it? Because what seemed to be a, a... fairly comfortable afternoon at quarter time was made very tricky obviously by a game Melbourne outfit gone influential in the absence of Nat Nui certainly the numbers suggest he was uh, yes uh, he had a, one of those funny days he gave away a um, pivotal free kick in the last quarter uh, and had a bit of an argument with uh, Elaney about that. I'm just trying to remember. He, she said he dragged the ball in. He actually dragged it. He was on the ground and dragged it down from the air. So I guess it's equivalent to dragging it in. But, uh, yeah, he's not uh, not getting on that well with the umpires at the moment, Maxi Gore. Well, the ladder makes incredible reading. Melbourne are now 17th on the AFL ladder. As In, uh, in fact, I have to go to the record books. Last time a preliminary finalist fell... That low on the ladder of the subsequent season may not ever have happened. Yeah, it might have happened in round one or two, but this deep into the season, it's just extraordinary. There, Yes, plenty of excuses, plenty of players missing on a regular basis, and it's unfortunately a season that almost when they started looking like they could get a bit of momentum with Tom McDonald as a key forward, they've lost him for the year. So it'll be a year best forgotten, but... If they finish 17th on the ladder, which may well happen, nobody could have predicted that. Uh, no, absolutely not. And it's, um, you know, we were talking a few weeks ago about the old Melbourne way in the late 90s where they'd have one good season and then one shocker. It's sort of like a return to that. But um, the thing is, the funny thing is, I, I don't feel, you know, with a few exceptions, most weeks they haven't been terrible. No, I, I, I mentioned last week that I thought that if they've got the mental capacity, remembering that Melbourne have not been able really to show great resolve over the last 30 years, they've tended to disappoint. But if they can put this season behind them, there's no reason they can't be a competitive unit in 2020. We'll wait to see. Now, how about West Coast? Because when you have a look at what Collingwood did the week after they were able to beat the West Coast, and the fact that Melbourne pushed them to the very edge of their limits in the red centre, then they're in QR at the moment. How much of a a loss... I mean, somebody like Cripps is a big loss for them, obviously. I I don't want to factor Nat Nui in because he wasn't there for very long, but Mm. what will it take for West Coast to be a serious contender? Because at the moment, they're off their best. Yeah, I think, um, funnily enough, I I think absolutely critical is Mark Hutchings. Um, And he may be back next week, I believe. So he would be... um, a very, very handy return to that lineup. That that suggests to me that you feel that they're a bit of a one way team. Um Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. Hutchings provides that run with cover, that defensive midfield cover yeah. that you don't get from many of their other players. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair call. And and last year, you know, in at the critical time of the season, the doubts about them centered over their uh, steeliness, um, you know, their ability to win, I think, a lot of contested ball. Um, 
and he's he's a big key to that as well as you know the capacity to shut down a a top midfielder as he did with um, Steel Sidebottom in the grand final. So uh, yeah, look, and Cripps is really important to them too. It's funny, isn't it? They, they've been this good a side now for long enough. You still sort of feel sometimes like people don't necessarily understand them that well. Maybe I'm one of those people. The top four to me looks like a, a, a clothes dryer at the moment. You put five or six names in and you're not quite sure where the tumble dry will take you. The way West Coast are playing, it almost becomes a matter of finish top two and they can go back to back, finish third and they can't. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's. I think where finals are played and what position particular teams finish in is going to be, if anything, even more important than ever this year. All right, that's enough on that game. Let's wrap up our review of round 18 with the final game of the round between St Kilda and the Bulldogs. Well, I'm going to let you take the lead here, Finey, because it was a great win for your boys. And, of course, the um, new coach bounce strikes again, three out of three this season. Big score, too. This must be, surely this is their biggest score of a season. 17-14-116. 27-point victors over the Western Bulldogs, 14-5-89. Four goals to Jack Loney, four goals goals to Membry, two to Clark. Isn't he playing some good footy? Two to Billings. And for the Western Bulldogs, five goals to Bailey Dale, four goals to Tory Dixon, two to Lloyd. So they um, they got some productivity out of their forwards. Out of Dick and Dale. Dick and Dale. Um, but they were absolutely pantsed at the start of the game and uh, it was always going to be tough for them to get back into it having conceded 6-5 to one goal at the first break. First of all, like anybody who's met Brett Ratton and he's just such a welcoming person, so easy to talk to about football, you're pleased for him that St Kilda were able to win on his coaching debut for the Saints. What stands out really is that final score of 17-14 because bar for the game against Melbourne that St Kilda won earlier on in the year where they got close to 100 points, they have not been able to get anywhere near 100 points. It seems as though 70, something around 73-74 seems to see St Kilda out and they hope to win some games and did win some games getting that total. But this was a slightly different mindset by St Kilda in that Yes, when they were on top, as they have throughout the year, the ball did roll forward and there was a bit of offensive power there. I think Loney, who missed about eight games, was underrated for his absence because he really is the natural small forward pocket that could benefit from Bruce and Membry, who are good contesters. So he kicked three in the first quarter, was quite influential. But what was different about St Kilda, when Bulldogs gained ascendancy in the second quarter... St Kilda, in fact, scored quite freely on the rebound. Three entries for three goals kept them afloat, and then they kicked the last couple of goals of the quarter to actually go in at halftime over 40 points ahead. And that was the difference because previously, and I'm not saying this is symptomatic of how Richardson coached, but it seemed to be the way St Kilda was playing was if the other team got on top, St Kilda's response would be to own the ball in their own back half and not move it forward. Now, that became difficult to watch, and in the end, to be St Kilda's undoing time and time again because they stalled in, at around that score of 73, 74 points, or at least teams knew that that was all they were capable of scoring. 
I guess the other real plus that continued on into this game, but certainly not just uh, the Brett Retton effect, has been the improved form of the likes of Hunter Clark, a real plus for St Kilda in the second half of the year. Obviously, the emergence of Rowan Marshall. And actually, Callum Wilkie had a good game as well. He's been very consistent. Hasn't missed a game uh, since being picked up as a late-pick rookie from the Sandford. Well, I'll give you, you know, someone who doesn't necessarily follow him that closely, my observation on Clark, I barely noticed him until last month. I've noticed him every single game they've played the last four weeks. Marshall, no doubt. In fact, I saw some champion data rankings points had him the most improved player in the competition so that one's pretty apparent um and the other one and i i sung his praises last week and i don't know why he seems to annoy some st kilda fans but luke dunson i think uh, appears to me to be pretty good value for them and it's certainly the best run at it that luke dunston has had since joining st kilda he was a relatively high pick and was down the pecking order in terms of midfield selection now i've got to say that if you Ranked St Kilda's midfield now, especially with Jack Stephen playing in the VFL this weekend. If Jack was to come back next week, I imagine they'd play all the midfielders. But if anybody was to miss out, it may be Seb Ross. Because I reckon at the moment he offers less than Hunter Clark and now Dunstan. Well, that's what they've got to be. I mean, with all due respect to him, because he's been really good for him. But that's what they've got to be aspiring to, isn't it? Well, they need to be ruthless because there is a midfield there with players that have played a lot of games of football, but it obviously needs a freshening up. It needs a spark. It needs something. Now, Hanabry may come in to the reckoning next season, in which case there would be more pressure on somebody like Seb Ross. What about uh, the Bulldogs? Have the, I mean, you could say that is the end of their finals hopes, but it's clearly not. Like three other teams, they're only a game outside the eight now. With the worst percentage of those four teams, though, Port, Hawthorne, Freo and the Bulldogs all on eight wins, a game behind Adelaide. Adelaide's got 110%, Port are 102, Hawthorne around 102, Freo 96, the Bulldogs 93.8. So um, 16-odd percent behind the Crows plus a game. Hard to pick that up over the course of five weeks. You know, they were disappointing on Sunday night, mainly because they almost were expecting St Kilda to come at them, call it the new coach factor, or just the fact that St Kilda and Bulldogs had played out some pretty close games in recent times, and they probably knew St Kilda were aching for a win, but they were very fumbly in the back line in the first half and gave St Kilda some opportunities that over the last three or four weeks you thought that they were building up to better football and weren't going to fall into that trap, but they were second to the contest much of the evening, almost caught in the glare of, here's a team with a new coach, they're going to be you know, full of vim and vigour. Gee, how many teams this season have we seen sort of start to build a, a run of form and then it's rudely interrupted? Again, bar from Richmond, who have sort of a legitimate... If you, if you track Richmond's injuries, there's a legitimacy to their troughs and now their momentum... Every other team is absolutely subject to the vagaries of poor form when you least expect it. True. Uh, the one thing you can also say, though, if you're neutral, uh, it at least makes for an interesting conclusion to the Home and Away series. That's it for Wraparound. They are nine games dissected in detail. Let's now turn our attention to the highs and the lows 
of the weekend footy. On Footyology, hot or not. Right, Fonny, I'm going to kick us off now. I know you cracked it a few weeks ago. You said, I'm always putting something Essendon in here, and I held off for a few weeks. But you've, I, you've been very good, I, in, especially during this great run of form. I've of been a good boy. Holding fire. And I can understand because there were plenty of high points on Friday night. So you won't mind if I do? I'd be disappointed if you didn't. <laughs> okay. Well, I am. And his name's Mitch Brown. And I think I might have had him in this segment before, but I'm having him again, damn it, because... Outstanding performance from Mitch Brown. And I know his, um, I was about to say USB, his GPS numbers. Um, he runs the sort of distances most midfielders run. The amount of territory he covers, and I've, a couple of games this season, I've actually made a point of zeroing in on him. And it is quite phenomenal. And he, we talk about Tom Lynch playing that connector role for Adelaide. It's pretty much what Mitch Brown does for the Bombers. And I maintain and have since the start of the season. Uh, Essendon's forward line is that much better when he's there. He straightens them up. He straightens them up. He clears it out. So uh, as often happens when he's not there, they're kicking into a cluster of tools all getting each other's way. That no longer is happening. Um, So him working so hard up the ground allows other forwards to have space to lead into, which benefits them. And he's a bloody beautiful kick. He's a, he's a, um, a reliable mark. You know, there's nothing spectacular about his game. I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but you know he reminds me of in a way? I and mean, there's a few guys that play like this. Remember Mitchell White for West Coast? Yeah, he's a good player. He's a bit like that. You see, I, I feel that he's had to overcome a disarming resemblance to an Essendon goofball of the 80s called Bernie Jones. Oh, late 70s, Bernie Jones. Yeah, but don't you think he looks a bit like him? He sort of... No, not really, but I did get sent a... Um, There's a bit of a lumbering... Well, I got set a separated at birth nomination um, for Mitch Brown on Saturday, uh, Friday night, actually, which was him and John Holmes of... Adult film fame. Oh, that I did not know. And I said, well, there's only one way to really compare that, and that's not with a headshot. He doesn't seem to be held back by a rudder. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Uh, a fantastic game from Mitch Brown. Four goals, eight marks, 23 disposals, and surely has cemented his place in Essendon's best 22. You're up. I'm going to do a rare three hots this week, and I'm Ooh, going to start Very with- positive. Hawthorne's promising, and I think delivering on the promise this weekend, big forward in Mitch Lewis. I, I I really felt that he was the danger forward and played accordingly in this important win over Geelong on the weekend. He kicked three goals, but he just has a bit of presence about him, and they are looking to build a future that some thought might have to require the rec- recruitment of pattern from GWS and I wouldn't go out of my way to get somebody with multiple knee reconstructions when I've got Mitch Lewis on my list. I reckon they've got a young man there ready made to be a big key forward for a long time in the future. That's really impressive and he's got better the longer the season's gone. Very quickly, can you answer this one for me, seeing you mentioned his name? Why is it Jonathan Patton and Ben Patton at St Kilda but there's only one T in Ben Patton at St Kilda? Shouldn't it be Peyton? No. Why not? Because that's not how he pronounces it. <laughs> well, I think it might be up to us to tell him he's pronouncing his name wrong. It's it's the, it's at if it's double T and eight if it's one T, surely. I mean, it's up to a family how they pronounce a name. Joe, Lee Montagna 
actually comes from a family that called it Lee Montagna. Yeah, yeah. It's their prerogative to pronounce it, I guess, in the strict Italian sense incorrectly, but that's what they call themselves. Like um, Rick and the young ones who had a silent P ahead of yeah. his name. You are, of course, Rowan Canoli, and I'm Mark Finney. Yes. <laughs> if truth be told. Well, when we start our Italian edition of Footyology next season. Um, we'll, it's the Canoli hour. Well, no, we're going to do a Footyology for Siri, Siri R. Yeah, that'll last one minute. Okay. Um, speaking of which, hopefully this will only last minute. Uh, I'm going a knot, and uh, I'm picking up your... Uh, I'm cutting your lunch here, Finey. I know you're um, you're, you're very prone to uh, give brickbats out for this bloke. Well, I'm giving one this week. Taylor Walker. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought he wasn't there when they really needed him to be there. He kicked a lovely goal from near the boundary line, curled it around beautifully in the second quarter and did the big face the crowd and, you know, bathe in its glow, etc. And uh, that was about it for old Tex. Uh, his night's work was um, eight disposals, three marks and one goal one. But in the all-important second half, as his Crows were being run over by the rampant Bombers, he had three disposals and one mark. Um, and he just has too many games like that these days where he just completely fades from view. He's, he's captain or he's co-captain. He's, he's got to be steering the ship and... Um, I'm not sure what's happened to him, but he just no longer has that um, sort of presence that you need from an on-field general, let alone a key forward. He's starting to get a Mike Brearley-type reputation as, well, he's selected as captain, but uh, we know that he's deficient when it comes to actually playing the game. Yeah, but the difference with Brearley was he was a good captain. He was is, a, well, is, is Tex a good captain if he's not doing anything? Like, well, Grant Thomas called them no more than coin tosses. I mean, really... A captain is part of a leadership group that should be invested with leading the club, whether he's a captain or not. Obviously, a cricket captain is on field to make some all the key moves and basically runs the ship. As far as Walker's value to that team, it is becoming questionable game by game, isn't it? It is. It is. I concur. All right. What's yours? All right. He's a definite ball winner, inside and outside. Got a very good pair of hands in a marking contest. Pretty deadly around goals. And is now at his third club, incredibly, having been cast off by League Pauper's Gold Coast. Of course, I speak of Jared Lyons. Now, I'm pleased that he ended up at Brisbane, not just because his brother's there, but because Brisbane seems to be a club where opportunity is given regardless of reputation. And he has found a place in that midfield that makes him an invaluable part of the team that currently sits second on the ladder, which means that you could scratch your head from now till doomsday asking why couldn't Gold Coast find a spot for him on their list. There's not a hell of a lot more that he does for Brisbane than he did for Gold Coast, which is very good. And as you said earlier on, if there's a downside to his game, it must be very subtle because it isn't plainly obvious to any of us watching. Well, I noted, I told you earlier how I tweeted about that, and that tweet I noticed was liked by a couple of his former teammates. So I think uh, it's fair to say they have a similar view to us. He's, he's very courageous, very solid mm. over the ball. Yeah, no, I'm a fan. That, that in and of itself is a big tick in the modern game. Yeah, yeah, no, one of uh, football's great mysteries, that one. All Who's right. Hotsy Totsy? 
I'm finishing off with a hotsy totsy too. It was milestone game for Liam Shields today, game number 200. And did he celebrate in style? Best on ground for mine in Hawthorne's terrific win over Geelong. 29 disposals for Shields, 7 clearances, 8 tackles. Uh, so I think he was equal leading possession winner, led the clearances and leading tackler, as well as two important goals. And he's a bloke who basically his entire career, uh, when you talk about um, players who are underrated or don't get – not so much underrated as just never – people don't talk about him, do they? They used to talk about virtually every Hawthorne midfielder except Liam Shields. And it was interesting when Tom Mitchell broke his leg – and I did this myself. We talked about who's going to step up. And we all said James Warple because, you know, he had that great debut season. And he had to take another step, which is true. But you think about it, probably the guy who put most pressure on is a Liam Shields because he's had to pick up that ball-winning slack. And um, he's just a really good, solid player. There's nothing overly spectacular about him, but he, he always does what's asked of him. He's done plenty of run with sort of roles and quiet and opposition guns. But he can get plenty of ball in his own right and kick goals. Uh, he does it all. And uh, great to produce such a, a great game, not only in a milestone game, but against uh, an opponent um, uh, against whose, you know, the clashes between those two sides are invariably big games of the season. And he's pulled out a ripper for a very important occasion. So congrats, Liam Shields, and well played, sir. I do have a personal um, bone to pick with Liam Shields that he'll What's never that? be able to correct. Well, I took my daughter to see. What year did they upset the Swans in the grand final? 14. And I had a, just on the way to the ground, I had a couple of lazy 20s, one on first goal kicker mm. and one on best on ground. Mm. And I had him at 25 to 1 to kick the first goal. And he did, did he? No. Well, I wouldn't oh. have a bone to pick with him then. Yeah, right. He, he got a free kick about 30 metres out. At the start of the game, no score either team. We were behind the goals. He kicked it, and it was going straight through. And then late, it swung like a Bob Massey outswinger, and it hit the post. Oh. I'm sort of thinking, Damn. Liam, Liam. <laughs> he's, a, he's a good – and he also had responsibilities today for Patrick Dangerfield, which mm. makes his performance even more important. Correct. All right, finishes off. Uh now, this guy's hot. Growing up, Taranto, for me, meant something cold. Ice they, cream. Yeah, they, they made the cassata. The, yeah. The, We've had this discussion. Yeah, the wonderful tartufo. Yeah. And the forbidden apple. Yeah. Well, today, he had a, or yesterday, he had a responsibility to step up in a midfield that was missing two prime movers in Canilio and Kelly. Now, we know that he's been capable of amassing possessions, and maybe in the in, in sort of like a crouch or a couple of other midfielders, maybe a little anonymously, mm-hmm. which brings into question how effective some of those possessions are, whether he's just an accumulator. But he was a generator of forward thrust in this game, and he added 14 important tackles to really be the hard edge of that midfield that caught Collingwood napping. Uh, part of that big first quarter, I thought he played a tremendous game. I haven't seen him play better. And for me, that deserves a hot. No, very good call. Couldn't agree more. Outstanding first quarter, and he was absolutely pivotal to it. There you go. The highs and the lows. Uh, we're almost there, finally, but there's one very important segment left to do, and that's one where we fire up a bit. I am, of course, speaking of the rant off. On Footyology, the rant off.
All right, Finey. I, I know I say this every week, but I am fired up on this one. Do you know what I'm doing? I have given you no hint what I'm doing. No, I? and the fact that you are fired up will come as no surprise, as neither will the first sentence being, I'm fired up, Finey. Well, not fired up as such. I, I You prefer another word, which I'll allude to now. Count me in. I'm going to go just three, two, one. I'm pissed off with all those coaches whinging about not being able to send their runners out in the ground every 20 seconds, Finey. John Longmire's the latest to have a sook about it. At his press conference after he and Ross Lyon had done their best to turn any self-respecting footy fan off the game altogether with that snorefest in Perth on Saturday night. We've got young kids out there that are running around trying to think about everything in the game, including just trying to get their hands on the footy, plus doing the rotations themselves and trying to think through some situations, he said. He added, I just hope some sanity prevails because coaches aren't there completely to ruin the game and when you've got a really young team, you'd like to be able to help them a bit. My response to the first bit of that statement, Finey, about coaches not ruining the game is, you couldn't fool me. The crappy look of so many games we watch now isn't because of rule changes, and it's not because players now are somehow an inferior version of what they were. It's because coaches are a pack of control freaks. And rather than actually develop the skills and the positive instincts of their players to hit targets with their kicking, attack and to score goals, they'd prefer to take every last bit of spontaneity and unpredictability out of the equation and try to win a defensive stalemate. As to helping those players a bit, well here's an idea. How about not loading them up with so much bloody theory, obsession with structures, where to stand at stoppages, kick-ins, and let kids who clearly have some talent if they're out there on an AFL field actually use it? Seriously, we predicted right here on this podcast last Thursday the Fremantle-Sydney game was going to be a good cure for insomnia. And of course, we were right. 14 goals in a game of footy, three in the last quarter, and Freo winning with a couple of behinds at the end. This may have been the most boring, alleged one-point thriller in the history of the game. Do you ever wonder, when two teams that play like the Dockers and Swans face each other, what might actually happen if the coaching panels of both clubs got stuck in the lift pre-game and the players had to end up coaching themselves? I'm tipping you might get a few more mismatches in one-on-one duels, but you'd probably also get a more free-flowing, entertaining game with some actual goals and one which won't have you desperately scanning which episode of Miss Marple's murder mysteries the ABC has got on instead. This is bloody AFL football, horse, not a PhD in applied physics. You get eight hours a day, five days a week to work with these guys. And if that's not enough to get your game day instructions across, perhaps you're simply giving them too many. I couldn't agree more. I, I, I'm amazed that a coach would say that poor players, they need to be coached during the game because they've got so much to think about, they might have forgotten some of the coaching lessons taught during the week. Oh, check out my Twitter feed, Finey. I dare tweet about it and I'm copying it from all these butthurt bloody Swan supporters saying, oh, but they're so young. I guess loyalty is required when you sign somebody on for three extra years. Mm, Could be an interesting three years at that rate. All right, I'm ready for yours. Three, two, one, rant. So they're bringing in the bunker to the finals. Well, it's not going to be called the bunker. It'll be anything but the bunker. Mission control, uh, maybe something that reminds us it's 50 years since we may have landed on the moon. Well, we may have got a better version of what we have in score review, but I don't think it's perfect. Yes, 
one step is going to be an improvement. That will be employing capable people to make the decision rather than the paper boy, the work experience kid, and somebody waiting to see Gil McLaughlin to sell him some encyclopedias down at AFL House. That was a mistake. But the basic tenant behind score review needs to be discussed because there are so many open-ended problems that will not be solved by a bunker, mission control, or NASA themselves taking over the problem. And that is, for example, if a player marks the ball on the goal line, plays on, and puts himself back in play, the game goes on. There is no facility to stop the game and check whether or not that player was behind the goals or in front of the goals. Really, the only time we're having serious reviews is when players claim to have touched the ball that is kicked through for a point and given a goal, or in the short period between the ball going back to the centre for a goal and it being bounced. No such time is being offered for things like whether or not the ball touched the behind post and is still in play, or whether or not the ball should be paid out of bounds or a behind. Now, A point might be as important as a goal in the final result of a game. Basically, it is still a very sketchy process, this score review, and one that is not being thought through at all. For example, the new technology for the goalpost is, I guess, an improvement, but from what we've seen, is as confounding and non-conclusive as what we had previously. How about using the umpire's ears and the umpire's good judgment? I'll tell you what the best thing for score reviews would be, and that would be to get rid of the whole bloody system. Go back to trusting those who put up the calicos and the umpire and accept that the odd mistake happens, but happens to all teams because we had a lot less controversy before we brought it in than we do now. Yes, this is true. Um, I, I think that's unlikely. I can't think of too many situations where technological advances in sport Reverse. have been wound back. It's not going to happen, but they have to really sit back and work out all scenarios. Because, as I said, if somebody marks a ball on the goal line and runs off and the game plays on, there's no facility to stop the game and check whether that player was behind the goal or in front of the goal. Hmm. So, I mean, we're only effectively uh, reviewing a percentage of things that we might be reviewing. It's the same with cricket, though, isn't it? When a wicket uh, when a wicket falls now, they invariably do the front foot check, but they don't do that for regulation delivery, do they? Sometimes the umpires do ask for a check of the front foot when they think it was close on a wicket delivery. But you know, I guess that is true, and that's a flaw in the system. I'll tell you what we don't want. We do not ever want Hawkeye to be part of the AFL. Not after the first ball of the England innings. Oh, yes. In that final. How that wasn't given LB. 48% of the ball apparently would have hit the stumps. Yeah, I reckon about 100% of the ball would have hit the stumps. Yeah, no, they they were pretty stiff. No, it's good, serious rant, and uh, I, I do tend to agree with you. Okay, that is just about it for our Round 18 review edition of the Footyology Podcast. Thanks for your company. Hope your side had a good win this weekend. Um, Competition reminder, Finey, of course. What was it again? Big hair. Yeah, follically gifted. Those players that had enough hair to do something with it, especially if they had a natural fro or, incredibly, players got perms back in the 70s. 
all pictorial examples gratefully accepted, though I dare say we'll probably remember most of them. Send your entries into info at footyology.com.au and you will win Finey. A beautiful Argon sports towel. that Gym towel. Yeah, and they are all natural cotton, 100%. 100% organic cotton. And they come beautifully um, housed in a small carry pack. And yes. Very sweet. Very valued, nice. Valued at $35. And a wonderful limited edition Andrew's Hamburgers t-shirt and cap. And they are thanks to our wonderful sponsors, Andrew's Burgers. If you get one with the lot there... You got the best of everything in a burger. And where can I get it? 144 Bridport Street. Albert Park. Albert Park. That address again? 144 Bridport Street. Albert Park. Albert's Park. And if I'd like my home renovated, where do I go? Nick's Bartels and Hardwick Build Co. You know the Hardwick in the Hardwick Build Co? Yes. It's from a very famous Australian family. Really? Not the footballing family, ah. but the Marion Hardwick family who are famous for making wedding dresses. Well, that's good. I was uh, worried you were going to say Mr. Hardwick from the famous adult movie of the same genre of the bloke we mentioned before who was the, the lookalike <laughs> to... For Mitch Brown. Okay. And speaking of lookalikes, that's a very good segue because we're going to leave you tonight with, I did mention, Jacob Wiedering has suddenly bobbed up with a beard that, to be honest, sorry, Jacob, but it looks a bit like it's been stuck on and it makes him look a little... Amish. And you know what's great about that? What? Jacob is a very Amish name. <laughs> it is too. So you came up with a song. We've uh, done our research on it now and had a listen, and I think it's highly appropriate. It is, of course, Weird Al Yankovic to the tune of the mid-90s uh, hit from the film, what was it, Dangerous Minds with Michelle Pfeiffer? Yeah, by Coolio. Gangs- yeah, Coolio, Coolio, Gangster's Paradise. And Weird Al Yankovic's version is... Amish Paradise. Here it is. We'll see you on Thursday. As I walk through the valley where I harvest my grain, I take a look at my wife and realize she's very plain. But that's just perfect for an Amish like me. You know I shun fancy things like electricity. At 4.30 in the morning, I'm milking cows. Jebediah feeds the chickens and Jacob plows. Fool, and I've been milking and plowing so long that even Ezekiel thinks that my mind is gone. I'm a man of the land, I'm into discipline. Got a Bible in my hand and a beard on my chin. But if I finish all of my chores and you finish thine, then tonight we're gonna party like it's 1699. We've been spending most our lives.